I speak with human eloquence, an angelic ecstasy, but I don't love. I'm nothing but the creaking of a rusty gate. If I speak God's word with power, revealing all his mysteries and making everything plain as day, if I have faith that says to a mountain, jump, and it jumps, but I don't have love, I am nothing. If I give everything I own to the poor and even go to the stake to be burned as a martyr, but I don't love, I've gotten nowhere. So no matter what I say, what I believe, and what I do, I'm bankrupt without love. Love never gives up. Love cares more for others than for self. Love doesn't want what it doesn't have. Love doesn't strut, doesn't have a swelled head, doesn't force itself on others. Isn't always me first, doesn't fly off the handle, doesn't keep score of the sins of others. It doesn't revel when others grovel. It takes pleasure in the flowering of truth. It puts up with anything. It trusts God always, always looks for the best, never looks back, but keeps going to the end. Love never dies. Inspired speech will be over someday. Praying in tongues will end. Understanding will reach its limit. We know only a portion of the truth and what we say about God is always incomplete. But when the complete arrives, our incompletes will be canceled. When I was an infant at my mother's breast, I gurgled and cooed like any infant. When I grew up, I left those infant ways for good. We don't see things clearly, not yet at least. We're squinting into a fog, peering through a mist, but it won't be long before the weather clears and the sun shines bright. We'll see it all then, see it as clearly as God sees us, knowing him directly just as he knows us. But for right now, until that completeness, we have three things to do to lead us to the consummation. Trust steadily in God, hope unswervingly, love extravagantly, and the best of these three is love. But for right now, until that completeness, we have three things left to lead us to the consummation. Trust steadily in God, hope unswervingly, love extravagantly, and the best of these is love. Thanks, guys. Hello. Good morning. Um, I'm Ralph. Normally, I have a guitar in front of me, so I feel a little naked. Uh, it's kind of vulnerable to have nothing between you and someone else. So here I am. It's good to be with you today. We've been in First Peter, and we're talking about what it means to become the people of God. Today we're going to talk about becoming a people of love. We're in First Peter chapter 4, and like Rick said earlier, we're going to slow down a little bit. We're going to stick in just a couple verses, verse 8 and 9. And uh, sorry, I've had you stand up and sit down, but would you stand? I want to read First uh, Peter chapter 4, verse 8 and 9 together. Would you read this out loud with me? It's up on the screen. Above all, love each other deeply from the heart, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Show family care to all with a willing and cheerful spirit. Let's read that one more time. Above all, love each other deeply from the heart, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Show familial care to all with a willing and cheerful spirit. Mm, so good. We're going to, to ground us kind of in this passage today so we can kind of go some different ways, we're going to split this up into three sections. Um, above all, love each other with hospitality. Um, I need some help to do this, so would you, would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we are here for you. You are the source. You are the very, very ground of our being. Would we not be confused today into thinking that we can do anything apart from you, but that we must rely completely on your utter sufficiency. You are so good. We love you, and we are here for you today. It's in your name, Jesus. We pray, amen. You guys can have a seat. So to start with this above all, sorry, I'm on this creaky ground. I'm just going to keep backing up. Above all, why, why is that there? What's, what's it above? 
Um, so I just want to take a little, a little uh, detour to have an excuse to talk about uh, where we've been in First Peter um, to convince you, if you've missed anything, to check out the podcast. It's really good. Big picture of First Peter so far. God is our hope. He's chosen us as royalty. So set your purpose to be holy, anchoring yourself in the living stone, Jesus, while you're living in the world, enduring pain and suffering for doing good, submitting to those in authority, living at peace with one another, and also living for God, abstaining from the idolatrous activity of the lifeless. Some good stuff. But now here we are in chapter 4, verse 8. Above all. In other words, your first priority should be love. And this is an echo of what we see Jesus say in Matthew chapter 22. An expert in the law, he comes and he tries to trap Jesus and he says, uh, what is the greatest commandment? It's kind of a win-win because if he gives one, he's like, blasphemy. And if he doesn't give one, he says, gotcha. So uh, he's trying to trap Jesus and Jesus gives an answer and he says, love. Love God with everything you have. And from that place, love each other deeply. And in response to this expert, Jesus replies, everything you think you know can be summed up in these commands. Love God, love people. That's the point. Above all, love each other deeply. That's great. It's above all. That's good. But what is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me no more. We have a lot of things. <laughs> Goodness, I've been waiting to do that all week. Um, <laughs> we have a lot of things that are trying to tell us what love is. Our culture certainly not the quietest of those voices. And the problem with, with listening to love uh, based on our culture is, uh, first I see this problem with how we use the word so flippantly, so generally. Um, in Dave Shockey's words, people tell you in one breath they love you, and the next they say, I love cheeseburgers. Uh, what this communicates is that love is all about satisfaction. It's about gain. It's about self. And so if we extrapolate love of cheeseburger to love of people, it becomes all about the, the pleasure that that person infuses into you. So my relationship with you is all about what I can get. And that means it's kind of out of my control. You know, taste change. Sorry. I love cheeseburgers, but I'm just not in the mood. I stumbled into another cultural problem uh, while I was at the gym. Uh, the gym has TVs, you know, at every possible angle. So the only way to avoid them is to close your eyes. Not a good idea in the weight room. Or to look at the ground, bad for the posture. So, you know, at some point you have to look at what's going on. And they... Uh, they have like 10 music videos that they cycle through the whole time and, uh, you know, sprinkled in with these ads about donuts and plastic surgery. And one, one of the songs that uh, just kept coming back was this song, and I don't recommend it. If I could remove it from my brain, I would. But it's here, and so I want to show something that I saw in this. Um, it's a song called Almost Love by Sabrina Carpenter. Again, this is not a recommendation. The premise of this video is of this song. In this music video, her and her girl squad are roaming a castle, uh-huh, searching for love. And of course, they meet up with some uh, fine-looking gentlemen, and they begin to play these random yard games together, as one does. <laughs> and at the end, you guys are laughing way more than first service. This is really encouraging. <laughs> At the end, all the guys, they turn into stone. They turn into statues. I think it was supposed to be kind of like a Medusa thing, like, you know, girl power, we run the world. But um, I, I think as I paired it with the lyrics, it, it spoke something pretty, pretty deeply about what our culture, um, how they see love. So here's just a taste of the last chorus. Almost love, oh baby. It's almost love, but it could be love, because it's almost love, but it could be love. Almost love, and you know, almost love, but it could be love, because it's almost love, but it could be love. Yeah, it could be love. Eh.
And the profound thing is that as they're, they're chasing after this idea of love, it's like the veil drops and all of a sudden you see that actually this thing they're looking at is actually an idol. It's stone. These things that we're so tempted to chase in our culture, so tempted to make our central focus, it's almost love. But in reality, it's just an idol. And that's actually why it's so dangerous because it's like, that kind of looks like love. It's almost love. It's like the song's begging, like, please let this be love. And here we bump into the connection between uh, idolatry and worship. So worship, to me, is, is the expression of what you love most. And so idolatry, then, is the love of anything more than God. Just to look at that at its you know, most base, base level. And Scripture is full of warnings about this. Psalm 16, the sorrows will increase of those who run after other gods. Romans 1, exchange the glory of God for the corruptible. They worship the created thing rather than the creator. In Psalm 115, those who worship idols will become like them. Just scary if you're worshiping a stone. In essence, we can't take our cues about love from our culture. Because if we do, this is what we get. We create a community of indulgence without integrity. We'll desire pleasure without perseverance. And we'll want satisfaction without steadiness. That's just not love. And so if we can't take our cues from culture, what else do we have? What about family and personal experience? It's pretty common uh, by now, I'm sure, if you've been in the church for very long, you've heard that your relationship with your family, with your parents, even specifically with your father, affects how you view God. If your earthly father is distant, sometimes aggressive, that might be how we experience God as father. Or maybe it's the opposite. Maybe your dad's passive and submissive, pretty friendly, but ultimately powerless. How does that extrapolate to your view of God as father? Or maybe your family environment had distorted views on marriage and sex and relationships. I can just take the maybe out. It's distorted. Maybe you are just now trying to figure out what healthy relationship looks like. How to not be cold and distant or emotionally dependent or as I tend, coercively sweet and flattering. Maybe you've never actually experienced what real friendship looks like, real family. And maybe it's not just passive. Maybe you've experienced some type of trauma. My hope is that none of you today have, but the numbers would stack up against that pretty hard. And I don't want to share this flippantly or lightly or to prove a point. And I I hope that this is uh, disruptive without being damaging, but I want to to honor the experience of what is sadly a huge portion of of our generation. 60% of youth in the U.S. have experienced violence. That's the majority of kids in the United States have experienced interpersonal harm. 10% of them were themselves injured. 300 to 800 billion dollars will be spent every year in the US on interpersonal violence and abuse. That's 30%. 30% of the reason in the United States why people go to get medical help is because a relationship has become violent. One in three women, one in six men will experience sexual violence in their life. Those are really, really big numbers. The first thing I want to say to you, if this is true, I'm I'm really sorry. And I, I need you to hear this, and I need to say it, that God is not abusive. Violence has never been on his heart. It is not on his heart. And if you are still hurting from that, we want Campus House to be a place where you um, can work through that pain, work through that trauma. And so please uh, reach out. We would love to, to walk alongside you and take your hand and take the hand of Jesus, put it together. And some of you may have never experienced this. That's, I'm grateful <laughs> that that is, that is true. Maybe you've never had a relationship that was violent or um, caused you deep pain. 
or maybe your family. You, you grew up in a family that loved God and, and loved each other well. That's amazing. I'm so grateful. And I, I consider myself to be, that to be true of me. But I also want to give you permission in this moment to say that no family is perfect. And no matter how good it was, we can't use our family as the perfect expression of love. Now, I am a huge proponent of family. It's like, that's the lens I see the world. I, that's how I see the gospel, is that the good news is that God invited us into his family. God puts people in family. Family is God's way of, of reflecting his love into the world. But in the end, if we're looking to family, if we're looking to other humans to define love, ultimately, they're going to fall short. So it's not culture. It's not our experience. What about the Bible? Okay, the answer is yes. You can, you can read. <laughs> it's through Scripture that we do see what love is. We need Scripture. It's God's inspired message to point us to him. But I want to add a caveat here. Um, we're in some turbulent times with, with our culture where we're seeing the shift from being a Christian culture to being, I don't know, post-Christian. I think that's what they're calling it. Where basically... Culture's no longer, it's no longer cool to be a Christian in our culture. It's starting to become even hostile. And in that, people are starting to look at, when we say something like biblical love, without defining it, and we say, that's what love, it's biblical love, uh, to people who don't, aren't familiar with that, aren't familiar with that tradition, uh, I think they have a right to question that. Because... Uh, there's, there's this way of reading scripture that I call APV, the American Pickers version. I don't know if you've seen this show, but they go in and they, they look through the junk and they say, oh, that would fit in my collection. I can, you know, shape it, make it, make it work for me. And that is a way that you can read the Bible. So you, you have to read the Bible the right way. And the Pharisees were a perfect example of that. This is a group of people who memorized the entire Old Testament, and on top of that, all these oral traditions. They know way more scripture than I will ever hope to know. But Jesus tells them in John chapter 5, you search the scriptures because you think in them you're going to find life. But you, you don't see, they point to me, and because you don't know me, you don't know your scriptures. Ouch. We can also see this throughout scripture. I'm sorry, throughout history. <laughs> Part of the reason slavery took so long to abolish in America was because slave owners would use scripture to support them. They would take out certain passages of the Bible and give it to their slaves. They would take out the Exodus. They would take out all these liberation uh, texts and they would give it to their slaves and say, this is the word of God. And Actually, in Scripture, there's no direct command to not have slaves. It's just not there. But does that mean that that's God's heart? Is that what love is? And we, as a global church, as the body of Christ, have decided across the world, slavery is not in God's heart. Can we say thank you? <laughs> that's not God's heart. God's heart is not slavery. But we have to find a, a way to read scripture that, that that is true. We see that even in scripture. That's the trajectory that it's going. So again, to say that in scripture, we do actually see what love is, but we can't just throw a Bible at someone and say, figure it out. So then what the heck is love? I love this, this story. Tradition holds that John, the oldest living apostle, um, the one who Jesus loved, according to John. <laughs> in the last days of his life, in his old age, he would come into the gathering. I always picture him blind and always shaky. Uh, and uh, like this old doctor he said, I had this hunchback. He would like walk in like this. He put stitches in my feet like this. Was, anyways, <laughs> I picture John coming in like that, and it says... It, in every, every meeting he was in, no matter what the conversation was, no matter what the questions were, his answer was always what we see in 1 John chapter 4. God is love. 
God is love. He isn't saying God is loving, God is lovely, God is lovable, all true. But he's saying God is love. The essence of God is love, as in the nature of God is love. It's who he is. It's what love is. So when we're trying to figure out what love is, what it looks like, we've got to start with God. Which I I feel like you're saying you should just start with that, because that seems like the obvious thing to do. But we run into a problem because Hebrews 11, 1 Timothy 1 and 6, Job 9, Exodus 33, Psalm 18, they all say God's invisible. He's spirit. You can't see him. So how, if we want to know what love looks like, God, is, God looks like love, God is love, but we can't see God, uh, yeah, it's, it's a conundrum. And this is where we get into something that has really just been messing with me been really uh, inconvenient, really disruptive to to my view of God's character. And now this is probably super obvious to you, um, so humor me, but I want to walk you through three passages of something that the Lord has really just uh, been placing on my heart. Um, If you have your Bibles, you can flip here. We're going to start in Hebrews chapter 1. It's going to be up on the screen, but it's kind of small. So Uh, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So in the past, in the Old Testament, God spoke through Moses and the judges and the kings and the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken through his son, which is another way of saying the final word belongs to Jesus. Jesus is exactly what God looks like. Can I say that again? Jesus is exactly what God looks like. We see this again in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. The son is the image the icon, the picture of the invisible God. Firstborn over all creation, for in in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He's before all things. In him all things hold together. He's head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn among the dead. So in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. All his fullness dwell in him. And through him to reconcile himself to all things, things in heaven and on earth, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now this, this is a radical statement from the Jewish God to whom the command, you shall have no idols before me, was, was a central command. And one of the central ways that Israel sinned was to disobey this. And the reason why, I've always been confused about why God didn't want idols. You know, I I was totally cool with like, you know, God is the best, so if you worship anything else, it's like dumb. (laughs) But that makes sense to me. But what he's also, there's another thing here that he's getting at, and we see this in Exodus 32. It's that the reason that we shouldn't create another image is that it could not capture the fullness of who God is. So in Exodus 32, Moses goes up on the mountain. The Israelites, just having left Egypt, they're like, "Uh, we need a representative. We need to see what God looks like. So let's make an image. Let's picture what God looks like. And I always thought this was like worshiping another god, like uh, this other god called the golden calf. But instead, they, they put this golden calf up, and then Aaron goes, this is the god who rescued you from Egypt. And that makes me think, because it's not that they were trying to worship another God. They were trying to picture what God looked like. But God said, no, that's not enough. That is not what I look like. And that's, what, that's why what Paul is saying here in Colossians, so radical, is that actually now in Jesus, there is a perfect representation of God. 
And lastly, John chapter one. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the father, who's near to the father's heart, has made him known. Now hold on, John. No one's ever seen God? Well, watch this. Moses, he saw God. He saw God so much his face lit up. And he came down the mountain and the people were freaking out, so he had to put a veil over his face. And Jacob, he saw God at Bethel at the top of the ladder looking up at the dream. He saw God up there. Isaiah said he saw God in a vision and he, he was lifted high on the throne and the train of his robes filled the temple. But John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, he says, actually, no one has seen exactly what God looks like until now. Only in Jesus do we see what God is really like. So in essence, what we're saying is this. God, God is un, immutable. He cannot change, right? He's the, the foundation of being. He is the eternal God. And God looks like Jesus. And so if God looks like Jesus now, that means he's always looked like Jesus. So God looks like Jesus. God has always looked like Jesus. And more specifically, as the late Hans Urs von Balthasar, the coolest name in the world, pointed out, it's specifically Jesus on the cross that reveals what God is like. And check this out. Being disguised under the disfigurement of an ugly crucifixion and death, Christ upon the cross is paradoxically the clearest revelation of who God is. Isn't that beautiful? Being disguised under the disfigurement of an ugly crucifixion and death, Christ upon the cross is paradoxically the clearest revelation of who God is. So let's condense this so we, so we can think about it. There's one God. He's love. That God looks like Jesus. So if we want to look at love... We look at Jesus. If we want to know what love looks like, we look at Jesus. I love the way Brad Jersak says it. He, he puts it like this. God revealed in Christ is self-giving, radically forgiving, co-suffering love. The God, the eternal God, who reveals himself in Christ is self-giving, radically forgiving, co-suffering love. take a quick glance at Jesus and his life of love that we see in the Gospels. Look through this beautiful scripture that we have to see what it reveals about our God, our Lord, Jesus Christ. I'm going to run through some, some quick stories of Jesus, and I want you to listen for this phrase, Jesus saw. Jesus saw. Matthew chapter 9. Just then a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. So an outcast, right? Complete outcast. Woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, if I only touch his cloak, I'll be healed. Jesus turned and he saw her. Take heart, daughter, he said. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed at that moment. A little bit later, verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd. And he healed them and he proclaimed the good news of his kingdom. In John chapter nine, as he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. He spit into the dirt and he grabbed the mud and he wiped it on his eyes and he healed him. John 11, when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and she said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. And the Jews said, see how he loved them. 
And you know the story. He raises Lazarus to life. It's a beautiful picture of resurrection, foretelling what he would soon do. But all of these began with him seeing these people. Lastly, I want to look at a story in John chapter 8. I want to invite you, can you close your eyes with me for a moment this week? I just want to tell you this story. And I want you to picture this, not from the perspective of one of the characters, not as Jesus or as the Pharisees or um, as the woman, but as, as one of the, the members of the crowd watching this take place. I want you to watch how Jesus interacts with people. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered and he sat down and he taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What then do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and he wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and he said, all right. But let the one who has never sinned throw that first stone. And he stooped down again and he wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest until Jesus was left alone in the middle of the crowd with the woman. And Jesus stood up again and he said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she replied. Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. You can open your eyes. Jesus, the picture of love, the exact imprint of God's nature, the fullness of God dwelling in him. He sits in the dirt with this wretched, stained, tainted, abandoned, outcasted woman. The lowest of the low, rightfully deserving in the laws of the time to be stoned. And Jesus, the one who actually had the right, the one without sin, says, I don't condemn you. He sits with and he loves And in the eyes of the crowd, he taints himself with this woman who everyone else looks at and says, other. You are other. Jesus says, no, I I say precious. I see you. And he says, go, leave this life of pain and sin, but not because I condemn you. Do it because I love you. John three seventeen. for I didn't come into this world to condemn it, but that through me it would be saved. So in this, we see Jesus as the bridge to the final part of this verse in 1 Peter. So we have above all, love each other deeply through hospitality. And I really, I don't like that word, hospitality. It's real soft, you know, it conjures up wine and cheese. But compared to the Greek, it's really, really weak. It's this word, philoxenos, which is literally phileo, show brotherly love to the xenos, the stranger. Show brotherly love to the stranger. To me, that sounds way different than be hospitable. Treat the outcast as family. So to say it like this, show family love to all with great joy. Love looks like something. I want to ask you this, kind of to look at this is in a parable that Jesus says, what, what if we walked through life as though we were actually the hosts? I, I see this in myself a lot. I, I, I just want to be invited. So I'm looking to every relationship saying, when are they going to text me back? When is, when is he going to treat me like I'm treating him? When is my dad going to act like, a, like a, a real real dad? 
But what if instead we saw ourselves as hosts? You're not waiting for someone to invite you to the table because we don't get to choose who's at the table. The guest list is already written. Every tribe and nation and tongue and we are guest hosts who in the joy of finding our name on the list are radically committed to inviting all people to their place at the table of the Lord, the feast of the Lamb. Love looks like something. John 13, 35, this is how they know that you're my follower. Your love for each other. Not, not this is how they'll know by your awesome understanding of scripture and ability to reason your faith. True, we need that, 1 Peter 3. Always be prepared to give a reason for the hope you have. But it's also, it's not by your amazing gifts of the Spirit, miracles and prophecies. 1 Corinthians 14, it says, eagerly desire the gifts. And it's not even your set-apartness, your abstinence from corruption. But we're supposed to not conform, Romans 12. Please do those things. But that's not what makes you recognizable as a follower of Jesus. Because you can do all that stuff without love. And that's, in essence, what we were listening to in 1 Corinthians. You can be the greatest of the great, but if you don't have love, you are nothing. 1 John 3.16 This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? My people, let us not love with words or tongue, but in actions and in truth. Dr. Cornell West says it this way, justice is what love looks like in public. Love has to look like something. Matthew 25, Jesus gives a parable that I, I really couldn't escape for this, this sermon. In the parable, Jesus separates the righteous sheep from the wicked goats. And this is a parable, right? So this is about the current state of your heart. And the distinction he makes between the righteous and the unrighteous is this. I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. I needed clothes, you clothed me. I was sick, you looked after me. I was in prison and you visited me. And they'll answer him. When did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison? And the king will reply. Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. And whatever you didn't do, you didn't do it for me. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And I want to make sure <clears throat> that we don't view this. This isn't uh, how we get rid of sin, right? This is, this is not how we're earning our salvation. Only Jesus, only through Jesus can that work be done. But the fruit of that relationship, the, the fruit of new creation is this. how you love. And there's so many needs in our community. If you check out our website, there's, right now there are three organizations that we're partnering with, Salvation Army, Swipe Out Starvation, and Caregiver Companion. And in addition to this, if you just Google ways to volunteer in Lafayette, you're going to find stuff. You've got YMCA, you've got Trinity Mission, you've got... Uh, Big Brothers, Big Sisters, Boys and Girls Club, Habitat for Humanity, Food Finders, Adult Resource Academy. If you still can't figure out from there where to go, just email someone on staff. We'd love to help you get connected with a way to serve that matches, um, matches your heart, matches your gifts. And to be clear, this is not shaming you or, I mean, we don't have anything invested. This doesn't, like, give us good numbers. This doesn't say, hey, look, look, we, look at all of us serving it's to say, this is the call of Jesus. Let's love our community together. And it also, it goes way beyond this. These organizations are doing 
really good things for our community. But this has to be the everyday, every moment life of the believer. This means welcoming the international student on your floor. This means inviting the outcast into your group project. This means sacrificially living at peace with your roommate. This means seeing the people no one else sees. And the point of me sharing these opportunities is so that you can get out of your normal sphere and see people. It's what love looks like. Jesus saw people. The hurting, the broken, the outcast, he saw them, he loved them. And that's, that's where true healing begins. That's the fertile ground where the gospel takes root. Is where people encounter Jesus before his name leaves your lips. So this is an invitation to get out of, of this really safe, this really convenient structure. And to go and see people who are different. Now this is, this is all good, right? It's convicting. It's... Uh, Clearly, it's in scripture, so I could probably just stop here if I wanted. Um, but there's, there's one more step, because this is all good, but what if I'm not a naturally loving person? What if my nature is pretty selfish? Personally, I'm so twisted that I trick myself into thinking that my selfish desires are actually love. If you think you're bad, check this out. The way that I feel the most loved and satisfied is when other people view me and see me as loving and helpful. So when I'm at my most selfish moments, there's a good chance I'm actually serving someone. (laughs) That's pretty gross. But we need help, right? John 15, apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. 1 John 4, we only love because God loved us first. In fact, any love that we do have is just evidence, according to Galatians 5, that the Spirit of God is at work. And so we, we've got to ask this question, how, how, does, it, how does the love get in there? <laughs> and I, there's, there's two invitations I want, I want to give you. The first one is this, just ask for it, right? When was the last time you asked God to break your heart for the broken, for the outcasts, for the lonely? When was the last time you Ask God to give you eyes to see people the way he does. The first step is just ask God for more love. And the second is this. We need to become more like Jesus. And the beautiful thing here is that we have all of these promises. There's, there's a method to this. We see it in 2 Corinthians 3. When we turn to Jesus, when we gaze at him with unveiled faces... It says, in that process, we are transformed into his image. And so when we are spending time with Jesus, when we're reading his scripture, when we're praying, not just asking him for things, but just being with him in prayer, listening, just being silent. When we gather together as a body and we worship, that's that gazing at him. It says, in that process, we're transformed into his image. And so those things aren't meaningless activities. They're actually changing you. They're making you more like Jesus. And if Jesus is love, if God is love and God looks like Jesus, then that's transforming you into a people of love. And I even, this is radical to me. So if we look at the Great Commission, it says, go and make disciples of all nations. And if the definition of a disciple is someone who's known for love, then the the great commission is this, go make a people of love. Go infect the world with the most contagious disease there is, the disease of love. (laughs) It's a virus that heals you. (laughs) Romans 12, in the continual offering of our lives and surrender and faith to God, He continues to transform us. He continues to renew our mind. And so it's not just this thing that we do um, inside the church, the prayer, the reading, the the worshiping together, but there's actually this lived out faith. It's a living sacrifice. And as we actually put these things into action, it says God renews our mind. And so lastly, I want to give you a picture of what a renewed mind looks like. 
We see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So I'm going to paraphrase this for you real quick. The love of Christ compels us. So because we were loved by Jesus, he says, go. Since Christ died for all, death is dead. Christ died for all that those who live might live for Jesus and not for themselves. And now get this, we no longer regard anyone from a human perspective. And so it's saying we've got this lens. We've got this lens called the human perspective. And Jesus says, my love says you take that off and you, you clothe yourself with me. And you see people the way I do. Because in Christ there is new creation. Look, the old has passed away, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled all things to himself. And then gave us the ministry of reconciliation to take this message of new life, this message of new creation, this message of a new lens to all people. Not just to all people, to all creation. Creation's yearning for this to be revealed. In other words, we see them as God sees them. We need to see people from the perspective of what it would look like for Jesus to show up in their situation. That's really good. Let's read that again. We need to see people from the perspective of what it would look like for Jesus to show up in their situation. I want to give you some quick examples of what this looks like. What would, look, what would people look like if we viewed them in this way? The homeless man on the street. He becomes a broken, hurting person, bearing the beautiful image of God, created for glory and utterly in need of love. The person we live with <laughs> becomes a broken, hurting person, bearing the beautiful image of God, created for glory and utterly in need of love. Your drunk neighbor who plays music too loud and wears a Confederate flag. He becomes a broken, hurting person, bearing the beautiful image of God, created for glory and utterly in need of love. And even your pastor becomes a broken, hurting person, bearing the beautiful image of God, created for glory, utterly in need of love. So let me sum up what we've been through today. Above all, love one another deeply, replacing this human lens with the love lens of Jesus because God is love, God looks like Jesus, so Jesus is what love looks like. So we take this Jesus lens and we no longer use our human one. Showing family hospitality to all with deep joy. We're gonna take communion together, so if you're helping with that, would you go get that prepared? We're going to come to the table of Jesus with each other. And on that note, if I can hold your attention for just, just one more minute, I want to address something that's probably going through your mind. So cool. We, we take off our human lens and we put on this love lens of Jesus. But this brings up a lot of questions, all right? What about, what about violence? What about evil? What about judgment? How do we love one neighbor if it conflicts with loving another? What if people refuse my love? What about social issues? LGBTQ rights, race relationships, politics. What's the place of love in that? Well, the good and the bad news is that this is something that hasn't been answered for 2,000 years. That we're in good company. People have been wrestling with this since its beginning. And as we come together to the table of Jesus, we've got to stop killing the people on the other side. And according to Jesus, murder is done in the heart. 1 John 4, whoever says he loves God but hates his brother is a liar. If we don't have love, we don't have God. So can we go ahead and pass communion? We're going to hold on to that. We'll take it together. And as we do, I want to reflect on this verse, Colossians 3.14. Above all, here's another one. Above all, clothe yourself in love, which binds us together in perfect harmony. I have two invitations for you as we go out today. The first one is this. If you yourself have never experienced the radical love 
of Jesus, we'd love to pray with you. To connect you to the source and the author of life and love itself. Receive Jesus. Commit your life to him. Be transformed by his love. And with a new heart, bring restoration until the kingdom of this world is the kingdom of the Lord. And the second thing is this. Can we as a community of believers pray this prayer? God, help me see creation through your lens of love. God, help me see creation through your lens of love. Can we say that together? God, help me see creation through your lens of love. Say that again. God, help me see creation through your lens of love. The close, I want to finish that passage from Colossians 3. Above all, clothe yourself in love, which binds us together in perfect harmony. Let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts, for as members of one body you are called to live in peace. Always be thankful. Let the message about Christ and all its richness fill your lives. Teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom he gives. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts. Whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to him, to God the Father. So if you need prayer or a hug or an ear, would you come forward? We'd love to, to pray with you. For everyone else, go and love and be the love of Christ to the world.